Welcome everyone to the worship service. Very thankful for the presence of you all. Uh, for you that are visiting, thank you very much for being with us. You are our special guest. We're so glad that you decided to worship the Lord with us. I'm so very glad to have you. Please stick around afterwards so we have a chance to get to know you and you have a chance to get to know us. We are in the, meeting of a gospel, or in the middle of a gospel meeting, and I want to thank you so very much, the elders and the congregation here, for allowing me to be a part of this meeting. It's just been an exciting endeavor as I contemplated, as I thought forward to it. Um, it's been pretty stressful leading up. Some of you all know that I was in the middle of a, a trial that uh, I'd hoped would be two weeks. I'd been told it was two weeks when I was asked to get involved. And uh, it morphed into three weeks. And I really, really thought that it was going to spill into this, this week. And I prayed hard. <laughs> I, I don't know if I prayed as much. I don't know if I've ever been as stressed out as I've been the last three weeks. And I apologize if you notice me leaving quickly and getting out just overwhelmed. I remember when I was just becoming a lawyer, uh, I talked to an older lawyer in the St. Clair County Courthouse, and we just got chatting about some stuff. And, of course, you know, when you come out of law school, you just, I'm ready to go. You know, I just, well, try cases, try cases, well, try cases. He said, you know, I want to rethink that, young man. When you, when you try a case, that's all you do. You eat, breathe, and sleep that case. You put in 14, 16-hour days. You're going to work weekends, evenings. Your life is put on hold. It's all about that case. Ah, he's lost the touch. He's not, he doesn't have it anymore. Starting to understand the wisdom of what he said after 20 years of practice. There's a lot to be said about that. So I'm very thankful for everybody's prayers. Uh, I, I think I saw Providence in action. So Friday, we had a couple witnesses. And uh, the plaintiff's lawyer, the opposition, the one bringing the lawsuit, he had given a three-and-a-half-hour opening statement. And all of my 20 years, I have never heard of a three-and-a-half-hour opening statement. It was so bad that the judge said, for closing statements, you have an hour and a half. And she was serious about that. But he was going to cross-examine our cardiologist. And I just knew, based on everything he had said uh, throughout the trial, oh, he's going to be here half a day. He gets up, he has about two or three questions, and sits down. The judge is shot. We're shot. Everybody, the jury's shot. Everybody's shot. We were so shocked, we didn't have our next witness till 11 o'clock. We had to rush back to the back and figure out what we we're going to do. And I said, guys, I have to apologize. That was my fault. I prayed this thing come to a close so I can get this done this weekend. <laughs> and they were like, hey, that's okay. You can pray anytime you want to. But I really appreciate the opportunity to be a part of this meeting. And uh, thank you for having me. I've done this, I think, once before and just really enjoyed it. Have you ever heard the statement that, that I'm colorblind? And it's made in reference to issues of race that I don't see color, and I'm not judging you by your color, and it's just not important to me. And, and I think normally when it's used, it's a term that we applaud. We think it's, it's a wonderful thing. But, but I want to suggest some limitations to the concept of being colorblind. And I want to suggest that these limitations are not personal limitations, not societal limitations, not political limitations, but biblical limitations. And I want to suggest that perhaps there are some thoughts that Paul suggested in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23, that, that may challenge to some extent the colorblind approach. So turn over there, 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, verses 19 through 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, verses 19 through 23. Now let me say for the record, so everybody knows, and you're here this time, so I can say it. Last time I said it, you weren't here. Bob goes to 11.15. All right, 11.15. Brother Herring, 11.15. So give me that. And I want to also point out that my sermon this morning was concluded before the last bell. Give me credit. Bear me witness. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. The Bible says, For though I am free from all men, 
I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. Verse 22, to the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Paul says that though I am free from all men, I've made myself a servant to all men. He says, look, when it comes to the Jews, I understand the culture of the Jews. And to the extent that I can do so without ever compromising the Word of God, without ever watering down the Word of God, I take that into consideration and it has an impact on how I present the gospel to the Jews. And when I'm talking to the Gentiles, remember Paul was the apostle to the uh, Gentiles. He said, I'm aware of cultural differences and their cultural differences from the Jews. And I don't water down the Word of God and I don't compromise the Word of God, but I keep those differences in mind and tailor my message accordingly. He says, you know why I do these things? I do these things that I might win some. You know, he said that over and over again, that I might win some, I win some. What's he talking about? Win their souls for Christ. He said, I become all things to all men or that I might win some. He's trying to persuade people, trying to convert people to Christianity. And he says, while I'm doing that, it is helpful for me to understand that everybody's not the same. To the weak, I became as weak. To the strong, I become as strong. He, I understand these differences. I want to call the sermon this morning just that, becoming all things to all men. Because I think sometimes, well-intentioned, we emphasize colorblind, colorblind, colorblind so much that we miss the wisdom, biblical wisdom, found in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. After all, if you don't recognize cultural differences, if you don't identify them, if you don't see them, how in the world can you tailor your message accordingly? Let's look at an example of this, great example. First, we're going to look at Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Becoming all things to all men. Becoming all things to all men. Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Galatians, the second chapter, verses 1 through 10. The Bible says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Listen to verse 3. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because a false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, we made reference to that a while ago, as the gospel for the circumcised was to, the, or was to Peter, 
For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. And so uh, Paul makes a very powerful point that, look, we didn't give in to this idea of circumcision for even one hour. This, you know, there was a raging debate at that time among Christianity. And the question was, what the Gentiles have to do to be saved. Now, the Jews felt like, okay, all we got to do based on what's been said is faith, but, but we're the people of God. We're the chosen people of God. We're in a covenant relationship. One of the signs of that covenant relationship is that our men have been circumcised. But these Gentiles now, they're pagan people, and they can't just obey the gospel just like we do. They've got to do more. There's a gospel plus for the Gentiles. They've got to be circumcised. They've got to follow some of these things a lot because they're not God's people. And so Paul was preaching against this, and he makes the point, he says, look, not even Titus, who was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So he would not have been circumcised. He was not a Jew. That was not part of his culture. And he said, look, not even Titus was compelled uh, to do that. And he said, if anybody had, I would not have submitted to them for an hour. In other words, I would have fought them on that. That's not right. That's not what the truth says. It's the same plan of salvation, the same gospel, the same plan of, of, of reconciling yourself to God for everybody, whether you're a Jew or Greek. So that he fought. This was a very important thing. And the fact of the matter is that physical circumcision under the new law doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And yeah, it was under the old law. It was a sign of being in a covenant relationship with God. But we're not under the old law. Paul wasn't under the old law at this point. He's under the new law. So circumcision doesn't matter. So I want you to remember that. Put it, underscore that in your mind. And we're going to compare that to Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Let's turn over there. We're going to compare Galatians 2, 1 through 10, to what Paul did in Acts chapter 16, 1 through 3. Acts 16, chapter 1 through 3. Acts 16, 1 through 3. The Bible says this. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy. The son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and what circumcised him? Because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, did, did that strike you as a little odd? Galatians 2.10, Paul said, yet not even Titus was compelled to be circumcised. And had anybody tried, I would have fought him back. Circumcision doesn't matter. It's not, no longer a sign of being in a covenant relationship with God. But then, then, then why? Why does Paul in Acts 16.3 have Timothy circumcised? I mean, after all, didn't you tell us? Circumcision doesn't mean anything. And, 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 and the Jews and Gentiles are saved the same way. And, 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 you know, the colorblind approach would be treat them the same way. It doesn't matter that he's Greek and Timothy's Jewish. Just treat them the same way. No circumcision. Not going to do it. But did you read Acts 16.1-3 again? Why did Paul do that? It said, first starts with some biography, that Timothy was the product of an interracial marriage. 
His mother was Jewish. She was a believer. She was a Christian. His father was Greek. By implication, it appears he was not a believer. And Paul wanted, he was impressed with this young man. Wanted to take him with him to do the work of God. Wanted to have his help and his assistance in uh, uh, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in that region. But there's a problem. You see, the Jews in that region, they knew about Timothy. And they knew about his background. And they knew that his mother was Jewish and they knew that his father was a Greek. And that was going to be a problem. So what does Paul say? He said, ah, colorblind, doesn't matter. Circumcision is no longer required. If those Jews have a problem with that, they just need to get over it. We're going to treat everybody the same. Don't dare recognize any differences. That's what the Apostle Paul said, right? No. What he said was, Timothy, this is going to be an issue. This is going to be an issue, the fact that you have a Jewish mother and you haven't been circumcised. And you don't want, and I don't want, and more importantly, God doesn't want these Jews distracted by that issue. We want the Jewish audience to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't want them thinking, is he one of us or not? Is he ashamed of his heritage? Is he a sellout? He's not a true Jew. He's, he's turned his back on. What? No, 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 no. Those are all distractions. So get those distractions out of the way. Just be circumcised. And then guess what? Nobody's talking about your parentage. Nobody's talking about if you're one of us or not. You know what they're talking about? You know what they're thinking about? You know what they're uh, hearing? The gospel of Jesus Christ. You see that? Now here's my question. Was that the colorblind approach? It wasn't. Paul recognized the difference between Titus, who was a Greek, and Timothy, who had Jewish ancestry. And guess what? That's okay. That's okay. Sometimes we have people just, just so worked up about it. Don't want to recognize any differences. Guess what? You can recognize that I am a black man. It's okay. It's all right. It's not a bad thing. It doesn't make you a bad person. Why, why do we, we have this notion that if I recognize any difference, it's bad, it's terrible, it's going to lead down this path. No. It doesn't have to be that way because we just saw the Apostle Paul recognize the difference between Titus as a Greek, Timothy as a Jew, and he used it to the furtherment of the gospel. That wasn't a bad thing. That was a good thing. And so maybe there's something there for us to learn that, yes, we can have differences. I was having a conversation with uh, one of the defendants in this case, a retired physician, and we were making this point. So why does everybody think that you got to ignore the obvious? He said, Kevin, I see you. You're a black man. That's and we're fearful that the next step is, oh, and I'll be discriminatory because of that. No, you don't have to do that. You don't have to be oppressive because you make that recognition. I mean, it's just recognition. We're different. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. I tell people all the time, I say, let me put it in this context. I hope this will, this will resonate with you. Bad timing, but it'll resonate. When I moved to Alabama, what if all the Alabamians had said this? Now, Kevin, you are welcome to relocate here in uh, Alabama, the great state of Alabama, but we've got some rules, we've got some restrictions. Don't, don't ever, don't ever say anything about Tennessee Vols. Don't, don't say anything. No. Don't ever wear anything that's orange or remotely affiliated with the University of Tennessee. Don't ever uh, show your exuberance about the University of Tennessee. Don't ever get together with other people who also root for the University of Tennessee in these gatherings where you exclude other people, the Ole Miss fans, the Auburn fans, Alabama. Don't ever do that. 
Just, just, you, you don't ever say anything. Just as long as you come here, you can be a Vol supporter, but just keep it quiet. Don't say anything. Don't give any indication externally that you're a Vol fan. Now, y'all didn't do that. Maybe some of you wanted to, but none of y'all did that. And that would be, be ludicrous. You know that I'm a Vol fan. You know I like the Vols. And you can treat me with respect anyway, notwithstanding what happened last night. And I'll just say a couple of things, can't resist. You do know that's a two and four team that lost to Georgia State. That did have some of y'all worried, be honest. Be honest. But anyway, the point being is we can recognize differences. And that's okay. I want to, let's, let's look at two sermons. Two sermons, Acts 2 and Acts 17. And as we look at these two sermons, I want you to ask, how does the speaker uh, uh, refer to authority to make his points? What source of authority do the speakers appeal to in both of these sermons? So look at Acts 2, 14 through 39. I know it's a long reading, but it's worth making. And again, as we're reading through, I want you to notice, how is the speaker, Peter, in Acts 2, how is he appealing to his audience? What is the source of authority? What is he pointing to as a reference for the things he's saying? And then we're going to compare that to Acts 17. Acts 2, let's begin verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, be nine o'clock. But this is what was spoken, but this is what was spoken by what? By the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And in my, on all my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in earth beneath, blood and the vaporous smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And I sh- it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to God by you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now look at verse 25. For David says, for David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always for my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of whom? Of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on this throne, on his throne. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Listen to verse 34. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, 
Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And we know that's not the end of the sermon because it goes on to say that Peter, with many other words, persuaded them to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. But let's just talk about that right there. What was the basis for authority that Peter kept appealing to? How did he support what he was saying? Why did he say, you ought to listen to what I'm saying? Didn't he over and over again refer back to the Old Testament Scriptures? Isn't that what he, that was his source of authority. He said, look at what Joel said. Look what the prophet Joel said, the inspired prophet Joel. Look at what David said in the Psalms over and over again, quoting Scripture, quoting Scripture. That's the basis for why you should believe the things that I'm saying to you. These things are supported by the Scriptures in addition to what you've seen with your own eyes and heard with your own ears. Now, take that and compare it to Acts 17, verse 22. Acts 17, verse 22. Acts 17, verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. As I was passing through and considering the object of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it. Since he's Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that divine natures like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising, truly these times of ignorance got overlooked. But now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Well, others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believe among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now I want you to remember Acts 2. And remember how many times Peter, what did he rely upon? Old Testament Scriptures. How many times did he talk about Joel? How many times did he talk about David and what was said in the Psalms? Now I want you to contrast that against Paul here in Acts 17. How many times... Did he reference the Old Testament Scriptures? Zero. Not a single reference to the Old Testament Scriptures. No, no express citation. And in fact, to the contrary, you know what he did reference when it comes to writings? Their own poets. Their writings. The writings in their culture. The writings that the Greeks were familiar with. Now here's the question. Why the difference? Why the difference? Could it be that they're becoming all things to all men, in order they might win some? What sense would it have made to quote to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, who did not know the Old Testament Scriptures? What sense would Well, you know, Joel said, you know, David said, who is Joel? Who is David? Why should we care? He don't do that. He recognized the difference in his audience. Now, the fundamental core message, belief in the crucified and risen Savior, is the same. It's there in Acts 2, and it's there in Acts 17. But how it was done was different. Why? Because of the differences in the audience. He recognized those differences. 
And he recognized that they had their own culture. And they had their own writings. And just think how much credibility he had when here is this Jew who's citing the Gentiles' own literature, their own writings. And he makes the point that he wants to make. That's credibility, folks. Now, you can't shut him down and say, oh, he's not one of us. He doesn't know us. Did you just hear what he said? He just quoted our own writings to us. That's not being colorblind. That's becoming all things to all men. Now, you say, well, you know, that's, that's good. I, I understand that in the concept of Timothy versus Titus. And I understand that in the concept of Acts 2 versus Acts 17. But pff, what difference does that make today? Does that have any application today, this idea of becoming all things to all men? And here's where I get in trouble. What's that old saying? Fools rush in where angels dare to tread. Let me be a fool for the rest of the sermon, if you, if you don't mind. We need to become all things to all men. We need to be aware of differences, cultural differences. And we need to make sure that that awareness helps and enhances the work that we're doing for the body of Christ and doesn't hinder and detract from that work. I'll give you some examples. Don't, please don't. Don't preach politics from the pulpit. Don't do it. Don't do it. Now, I'm not saying if there is a moral issue that the Bible talks about, maybe it's gay marriage, maybe it's abortion, we absolutely must preach and teach about that because it's taught in the Word of God. I'm not saying that. And if that bubbles up into the political sphere and the political arena, so be it. We're still going to preach the Word of God. But I'm talking about some stuff that goes outside of the scriptures when it comes to politics and what it does to the audience. Remember, Peter, Paul, the differences, how they tailored their message to the audience. Why? To have the greatest impact. They want people to receive the word. They want people to hear, believe, and be saved. That's when we preach and teach, isn't that our goal? That's what we want. So we have to be aware of differences, and we don't want to preach politics. Now, let's really be candid. What are some assumptions when it comes to politics and Christianity? All right, let's just let's, let's call the elephant in the room. If you're a white conservative Christian, Republicans, that's not, how could you vote for anybody else? You've got you to be a Republican. You know that. Yeah. And so what happens, and this has happened, you have white conservative preachers who go preach. And uh-oh, there's some black people in the audience. And you know what? They just may not be card-carrying Republicans. And this happened once. I was a brother in Christ that was telling me about the African-American. And he said he was so incensed by what the brother did. He said it was just rank politics. It wasn't the Word of God. It was just politics. He could not think of anything but that. Has it ever happened to you? And it may not be in this sphere. But I'll be honest. It's happened to me. I'll be sitting back. Somebody will say something. Now, it's not the Word of God. You say the Word of God. I ain't got nothing to say to you. That's, let, let God be true and every man a liar. But every now and then I hear some politics slip up into something, and for the next 15 minutes, I'm slicing and dicing. There's about 10 things wrong with what that brother said. You know, I got my list. I'm ready. Now, the problem is, for that 10, 15 minutes, what did I not hear? Whatever he was presenting. I ignored it. I was distracted. We don't want to do that. I don't want you distracted from the message. That's poor communication. That's not what Paul did. That's not what Peter did. He understood his audience. And he presented it accordingly. And if you think it's just a race thing, let me throw you another curveball. I was at a congregation years ago uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. And I'm sitting at the, one of the elders' uh, table. He invited me over for, for a meal. 
And uh, it was clear the conversation was about to turn to politics. And again, based on the assumptions I just gave you, I said, well, I know where this is coming from. And all of a sudden, here's a white, male, conservative elder who voted for Barack Obama. Now, some of y'all would have been in trouble. Y'all would have said something like, oh, well, I didn't realize I stepped on some toes there. Now, we're not going to get into, you know, can you be a Christian and vote Democrat? Although, I'll just throw you a couple things out there. No party. No party has God's platform. I used to have a, a Wednesday night invitation. Is God a Democrat or Republican? Answer, neither. And I guarantee you that white elder could give you some compelling reasons to make you rethink some of your assumptions. But put that aside. That's not the point. And for anybody who wants to know, I'm an independent. You can't get me. You can't get me. And let me tell you why I do that. Because I, I recognize this. You know, we talked about my brother earlier, right? My brother has done and may still do from time to time some boneheaded things, as I do. And I have every right in the world to talk about my brother. But don't you talk about my brother. That's my brother. We're family. We're blood. I can talk about him. You can't. And that same kind of dynamic applies to politics. You notice that? So, you know, when it comes to your party, they can't do anything wrong. But the opposition, oh, man, it, you know, I love these discussions. They're talking about somebody in office and say, man, that guy's behavior, man, it just about undermined the foundations of the republic. The whole world is coming apart. And then their guy does the same thing. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> that's okay. That's all right. No. <laughs> if it's wrong, it's wrong. It doesn't matter if you've got an R or a D. I don't see that distinction. I mean, if you've got some logic, you can sell me on that. You can work on me, but I'm not going to go there easily. As I said earlier, if it's my dad, I love him to death. But if he's wrong, he's wrong. We're not going to call things what they're not. But people get so caught up in that. You know what they do? They shut down audiences. You don't ever want to shut down an audience. I'm not preaching politics. Let me give you a, a quote. See what you think about it. Education is our passport to the future. For tomorrow belongs to those who prepare for it today. I mean, who could disagree with that quote? Education's our passport to the future, for tomorrow belongs to those who prepare for it today. I like to use that when I talk to young people, trying to encourage them about the importance of education, being prepared, and doing your best. Who could disagree with that? Now, when I preach to white audiences, you know what I say? Someone once said, or there's this quote. But when I preach to black audiences, you know what I say? Malcolm X said. Now, why do you think I make a distinction? I'll tell you exactly why I make a distinction. I'm not saying everybody. But when I speak in white audiences, somebody, oh, he just quoted Malcolm X. Malcolm X is a black nationalist. Can you believe that? He, I wonder if he believes that too. And oh, there you go, off on the races. And all I wanted you to get the point is education is important. That's all I wanted. So I'm going to take that off the table. I know the difference between Titus and Timothy. I know the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so I'm going to make sure that no one gets distracted by that. I want you focused on the message. These are the kinds of things that we're talking about. Being aware of one another. Being aware of the differences and not tripping up over that. I'll give you another example. Back in 2012, at a congregation where my uncle was attending, who's a Christian, there was a young man who was giving a presentation for, I think it was Wednesday night. And it was clear that he was very anguished and torn by the outcome of the election at that point. That Mitt Romney, the Republican nominee, had lost to Barack Obama. And that came out <laughs> during the course of his comments in church, in the assembly, on Wednesday night. 
And so at the end, after the gentleman had his say, uh, my uncle just raised his hand. And my uncle Mike, some of y'all have met him. He's, uh, he's a little old-fashioned. He's a little different. Uh, so he says, uh, good people, may I have a word? Uh, I have been or served in the Navy for several years. And during the course of my travels across the country or across the world, uh, I saw how special this country is. You know, there are not many places in the world where there could be such a peaceful transition of power as we just witnessed from this election. Now, whether it's your guy or not, whether you like it or not, we just had an election. And the election said that President Barack Obama stays in office. And we ought to respect that result, whether or not we agree with everything that that particular individual says or does. And you know what that young man did in front of that congregation? He apologized. He apologized. He had forgotten 1 Peter 2.17, honor the king, which is most difficult when? When your guy's not in. <laughs> Easy to honor the king when uh, that's one of us, that's one of my guys. But when it's the other part, that's difficult. I, I preached this one time at a congregation nearby, and the song leader, no less, at the end had to get up and repent. So I'm guilty of doing the very thing that Brother Clark just talked about. Got to respect the king. What are we talking about? Don't get involved in politics. You remember I told you I was distracted. I came up with 10 different ways that what the brother said is wrong. But if you preach the Word of God, I don't have 10 different things. Why? Because the Word of God is right. There are not two different ways that the Word of God is wrong. Stay on message. Stay on script. The script is the Word of God. We don't need all this opinion and all this kind of stuff. This is what we need to go to heaven. Let me give you another application. Social media. Social media. Be careful with your social media. Be careful what you like. Be careful what you endorse. Be careful what you send around. I'll be honest with you. There's some things that have been sent around by some brethren, and I think, I know they didn't think about the fact that I'm black. I know. <laughs> they, they would have said that. <laughs> they forgot about it. Or worse yet, you probably had this. I've had some brethren send around some stuff that got profanity in it. Wait a minute. Here we are supposed to be standing up for the light, and we're out there spreading filth. Does that make sense? Be careful. Be careful what you endorse. And think about Think about how it might be perceived by others. You would never want to say something, do something, spread something that causes maybe one of your brothers and sisters in Christ right here to question you, to question where your heart lies. And, and, and sometimes there's such a disconnect between the person and your interpersonal communications with them and what they send. You're like, which one is the real them, you know? And maybe the person hadn't even thought anything about it. They just thought, oh, yeah, just send it on. That's interesting. Or maybe there's an aspect of it that's true, but there's a lot of falsity there. You've got to be careful with that. Preachers have to be careful when they give illustrations or they reference books. A lot of times I'll issue qualifications. Now, look, I'm not saying this is right. Or I don't agree with everything. But on this point, why am I doing that? I want to make sure that you know clearly what it is that I'm endorsing and what it is I'm not endorsing. We want to be careful what we say. We can say things. We can spread things in social media that are so offensive. And folks, I'm telling you, I've gone to many, many congregations where this issue has come up. Where people have told me, confessed to me, pulled me aside and said, look, this brother sent something and I haven't been right since. And I have some issues with that brother. Now they need to go talk to that brother and see if we can get it reconciled. But let's be thoughtful. Let's be careful. Let's say, how are people likely to, to respond to that? Why? Because I don't want my influence undermined. I mean, there's some things you could say. There's some things you could uh, uh, put out in the, the social media space that people will never listen to you again. Wouldn't that be a shame if somebody in your workspace, you were trying to convert to the gospel, and you put something out that was insensitive to a group, and they look at that and like, you can't tell me about the gospel. 
You got some fundamental problems yourself. You need to get your house in order. Then start telling other people about the truth. And so we want to be careful. Don't let, you know, always when we talk about spreading the gospel, we don't want ourselves to get in the way of the gospel. Yes, the gospel is and will be offensive to certain people. But let the offense come from the gospel. Let the offense come from the Word of God. Don't let the offense come from insensitive Kevin Clark, ignorant Kevin Clark. Kevin Clark who said something or liked something or supported something or forwarded something he shouldn't have. I don't want that to happen. My influence is too important. And that's what I, I tell people. It, it, whatever you feel about politics, however strongly you do, what's the end game? The end game is going to heaven and get as many people there as you can. Nobody in heaven is going to be thinking about Republicans and Democrats and small government and limited government and welfare. Nobody cares about that in heaven. You know what people care about? I'm with God for all eternity. And we want to get people there. And no politics, no political position is worth compromising my position as an ambassador for Christ. And it's true for you as much as true for me. It's just not worth it, brethren. It's not worth it. We, we, we love each other here. We talked about love does no harm. But sometimes unintentionally, I agree, sometimes unintentionally, harm has been done by what we spread in the social media space. Now let me say this. You may say, man, I'm getting tired of him getting on my white folks, man. What about black folks? Yeah, we got the problem too. It's not, li- not limited to y'all. Uh, I was in Nashville and worshiped with all black church there. And I remember I was with uh, what I call the matriarch of the congregation. She'd been there for years and years. And we were in her house and getting ready to enjoy a good meal and talking about some stuff. And she made this statement. She said, you know what? I don't know why any self-respecting black Christian would ever want to worship with white people. You know, white people didn't want to worship with us back then. And I don't want to worship with them now. Well, folks, that's just as wrong coming out of a black mouth as it would be coming out of a white mouth. Now, I understand what she's saying, but she's wrong. She's saying, well, historically, the whole reason why we got black churches is because white people wouldn't let us worship with them. If they didn't want us then, I don't want them now. That's not biblical. That's not biblical. That's not love. Love does no harm. Those are harmful statements. And it, it incenses me sometimes when my fellow African Americans will say something about other people, say something about Latinos, or say something about Japanese or Chinese people. I'm like, oh, come on, man. Man, you would get furious if white people talked about us, and now you're doing the same thing. Come on. You got to be better than that. So I'm not saying one race is superior and got this all covered versus another. There are some black folks that are still scarred by the things that happened in the past. I've talked to some very candidly. And they need to get over that. You know how you get over that? It's the Word of God. You know how I know that from personal experience? Remember I talked to you about my mother? My mother was scarred by Jim Crow segregation. And when we became the first African Americans to attend the Oak Ridge Church of Christ, she struggled mightily. Because in her mind, she had all of those experiences, all those negative experiences uh, at the hands of white people. And all of a sudden, now you got to call these people your brothers and sisters in Christ? She struggled with that. These are the same people that wouldn't let me go to certain restaurants. These are the same people that wouldn't let me stay at certain hotels. These are the same people that made me go upstairs to the balcony when I simply wanted to watch a movie. These are the same people that wouldn't let me drink out of a certain water fountain. And now i got to call these people brothers and sisters in Christ? Yes. Yes, you do. And over the years, I watched as the love of God took care of those scars from Jim Crow segregation to the point that when my mother was literally on her deathbed, there were several white sisters right there holding her hands, 
crying their eyes out, supporting her at the very end. The love of Christ, that's the answer. But we, we've got to use that. We've got to understand that. I know none of you here would ever want to say or do anything that would hurt another brother or sister in Christ. I know you don't. But I'm saying let's think more. Let's be more sensitive. Let's be more attentive. So that we never compromise our effectiveness as a vessel of God in the kingdom. Becoming all things to all men. The Apostle Paul spoke about this in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. But don't leave it there. Apply it to your own life and all of us can get better. I will say this is the last of the sermons directed to the issue of race. Some of you are probably, yeah, I'm tired of that. You know, we had, we had a place down the road. We had a whole gospel meeting dedicated to this. And uh, one of the relatives of, of a member there, I saw her a few weeks after that. And she was asking about it. She's like, I mean, a whole gospel meeting on that subject? A whole gospel meeting? And again, I just think, you know, would you say that if we were talking about grace or mercy or the cross or biblical authority? I just, it's just kind of a strange response to me. I, I wonder if there's something more to it than simply, oh, I'm just tired of hearing that. You don't need, I mean, there's a lot to be said. But I did want to say that. And I also want to say this, that I'm not the angry black man shaking the accusatory finger at all you white folks for all the terrible things you've done. This is not political. This is not personal. This is the gospel. I'm just preaching the truth, folks. And remember what we said earlier, uh, Acts chapter 20, 26, 27, Paul says, I have not shunned and declared to you the whole counsel of God. This is part of the counsel of God. You've got to talk about it. And, and it's certainly not when it comes to Brother Hutto, because we just heard a lesson from him a few weeks ago. But it's odd to me that I, when I go to a lot of places, people are like, wow, I hadn't heard anything like that. Wow, that's really different. Wow, man, I, why is that different? Why should that stand out? Isn't everybody preaching and teaching this stuff? It's just the Word of God. We ought to be. And if we're not, shame on us. Don't take the position. We can't do that. We talked about this morning. We're going to hurt people's feelings. We're going to drop people away. It makes people uncomfortable. You know what? In order to grow spiritually, sometimes you need to be uncomfortable. I shared this with a couple people, and I should have shared it earlier. I'll share this and then bring it to a close. Almost 11.15, Bob. Um, brother, there was a brother in Athens, Tennessee. I was preaching, and I said something about interracial marriage. And afterwards, he pulled me aside. Good brother, good friend of ours. We, we've known him for years. Thank the world of him. And he said, Kevin, um, I got to tell you something. What you said about interracial marriage, absolutely right. It's just as true as it can be intellectually, just as true as it could be spiritually and biblically. But I have to be honest with you, Kevin. Based on the way I was raised, I struggle with that. I struggle with that. What's he saying? He's saying his parents were not enlightened on that issue. And because he was a child sitting at their feet, he heard that year after year after year. Guess what? He's got some of those attitudes. But give him credit. I, 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 I admire that brother. Because what, what does the brother say? He said, look, I know what the truth is. I know what's right. I'm just confessing to you because as a child, and none of us chooses our parents. As a child, certain baggage I picked up and I'm working through it. Brother, that's fine. I'm working through some stuff too. We're all working through some stuff. But what I commend, what I applaud is he knows the truth and he knows the source of truth and he's doing everything he can to conform his thinking over years and years in the formative stages to the Word of God. That may apply to you. And I'm not asking afterwards for y'all to rush up to me and make confessions about your parents and grandparents and all that kind of stuff. No, I'm not saying that at all. Uh, I'm just saying, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself. Do you have some of these attitudes? And if you do, Let's work on getting rid of them. Because all it's going to do is hinder our effectiveness in the gospel. I don't know about you. I want to win as many souls for Jesus as I can. And if there's anything 
uh, politics, economics, uh, how I dress, how I talk, anything that's going to get in the way of that. I need to let that go. Why? Because the soul is more important than any of those things. And that includes politics, and that includes racial attitudes, and racial preferences, and all that stuff. And certainly we don't want to have an attitude that's going to condemn our souls because we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. And so, if anyone's here not a Christian, we want to switch gears here and talk to you for a second. If you're not a Christian, we want you to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's the only way you can be saved. If you are not saved, you will burn for all eternity in hellfire. I mean, let's don't sugarcoat it. That's, that's the reality. It's got to be through Jesus. How do you obey the gospel? Hear the gospel message. Believe it. Repent of your former way of life. Confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and be baptized. That's immersion into Christ. When you're baptized into Christ, you contact the blood of Jesus Christ. What does it do? Washes away your sins. What does God do for you? He puts you in His church. Only one of them. He's the only one that can do that. Once you've been placed into His church, you know what you need to do? You need to join some disciples in a geographic location. Remember Acts 9? Saul, what did he do? He tried to join the disciples in Jerusalem. Why? Needed to be with a group to do the work of the Lord in that community. Unfortunately, he had some difficulty because of his background. Barnabas had to vouch for him. But the point is, once you obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not added to the Oak Mountain Church of Christ. You're added to His church as one of them. But you need to do the work of the Lord in whatever space you find yourself and start doing the work of God, which is what? Luke 19.10 to seek and to save that which is lost. And your whole life becomes oriented around that. And you know what? When your whole life becomes oriented around that, this kind of stuff falls away. wayside. It's a non-issue because I'm trying to win souls for Jesus. If anyone's subject to that invitation, we ask you to come forward as we stand as we sing.